This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences will often show us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. This is that time of year when we're planning trips to the beach, to the mountains, just getting out of the office. Let's say it's time to chill and relax with a great book. Well, we've got one of those for you today, written by a local daughter. The book is Visible Empire, and the author is Hannah Petard. Though I learned just a little while ago that, Hannah, you're from here. So I guess back in the day, you used to be Hannah Pittard. Hannah Pittard. <laughs> what happened with your name? We uh, we went away one by one as kids. My sister went to boarding school, and she came back a Petard, and my brother went to California. He came back a Petard, and then... I went to boarding school and I came back a petard and my dad sort of threw up his hands and he said, I guess we're all petards now. <laughs> so you are the author of a number of novels, including Listen to Me, Reunion, and The Fates Will Find Their Way. When did you know that writing was your passion? Early on, very early. Um, I was not a popular child. And I did not have many friends. I was a classic introvert. If you talk to me at a party, and that's if I got invited to the party, which already was not likely. But if I was then at the party and you tried to talk to me, I would have turned bright red. Um, these amazing like finger-like lines that would start on my chest and creep up into my neck and then my cheeks to my ears so that I would be scarlet. I would turn bright red and then I'd start crying. My mom used to go to parties with me, and she would witness this, and then I stopped having to go to parties. Um, what was the question? When did you know that writing was right. your passion? Wow. So because I did not have many friends, um, I uh, wrote a lot of stories, and I created friends of my own, and I spent a lot of time alone. and. I was very lucky that while I didn't have peers that I spent a lot of time with, my parents were very um, welcoming and encouraging of their strange little quiet child and her writing tendencies. I did not ever believe that writing could be a profession for me. I, I thought it was just something that I did to pass the time and to stave off loneliness, but my mom when I was in my 20s, she said, have you thought about grad school? And I said, don't be silly. Nobody nobody makes it as a writer. And she said, you're really good. You should look at grad school. And I did. And after several years of trying, I finally got in. And you know, I came in off the wait list at UVA. And uh, I was definitely the least strong writer of the crowd. But I had ambition and a real desire to learn and to try and um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a book published. And then, you know, the rest is kind of history. So of those stories that you wrote to comfort yourself as a kid, do you still have any of that stuff around? There, there are a few. And they are bad. And sometimes my mom will pull one out. Uh, my dad has pulled one out before. Uh, I found a fourth grade literature journal, you know, and I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, that we had bound as a little fourth grade class. And there are some poems in there by me that are so embarrassing, and I hope they will never see the light of day. Uh, but yeah, you, you got to keep things like that. It keeps, it keeps a person honest, for sure. 
So you and your siblings are from here, but you left here and have lives in other parts of the country. I was reading about you, and you seem to have sort of uh, not the best relationship with the, your hometown city. Why is that? I, I love that I was born and raised in Atlanta. I love that I was born and raised in the South. I love that if I get a couple of glasses in me, um, I drop the terminal Gs, and I get a little bit of a drawl. And if I talk enough with other people with accents, mine comes out pretty thick. Um, my parents got a divorce when I was six no. years old, and the custody battle lasted a decade after that. And we were in and out of courts. We were, it was, it was very ugly. Um, and we, I was in and out of psychiatrists' offices and judges' offices. And it's very difficult for me to separate my memory of that time in my life from Atlanta because wow. Atlanta and driving around the city and driving from lawyer to lawyer to shrink to shrink to judge to judge that, you know, it's just, it's, it's necessarily an ingrained part of the memory, but I love Atlanta and I've, I, I got back in la last night and I got up early this morning before the heat kicked in and I got a run in and I ran by, um, a place where my mom used to have a shop and you know it just it feels good to be back i love the kudzu i love how <laughs> green it is and i love the magnolia trees we are so lucky i just love it and you're currently a professor of english at the university of kentucky and your book visible empire is a novel that is based on a true story. You take us back to Atlanta in the early 1960s and a story that is very familiar to, to some of our listeners today, the Orly plane crash. Why don't you refresh our memories? Tell us what happened and how you became aware of this story. Sure. So in 1962, a group of about 120 Atlantans signed up for a chartered Air France flight to Europe where they would then go on a tour of all the major art sites. And at the end of this huge, um, you know, tour around Europe, uh, they came back to France. They reunited for an evening. And the next day, June 3rd, 1962, they boarded another chartered Air France flight. The flight there are different witness accounts. Some some people say it left the air for six inches. Some say six feet. But it crashed on takeoff. And it killed all but two flight attendants. And the city really felt the effects of that. And especially within a particular community. And it just so happened that it was a very white, very privileged, very powerful community that lost about 120 of its most prominent members. And overnight, um, that community changed. And when a community at the top of a power structure changes, it means that um, down the power chain, other people feel it as well. And your mom originally told you about this? She did. Um, my mom, my dad has obviously told me tons of stories too. many of them, I'm sure, apocryphal. Um, but yeah, my mom told me about this story about um, 120 white Atlantans who died on one plane and you know the the child's imagination just goes crazy with information like that and 
to this day, I am a difficult flyer. I take medication in order to get on an airplane. My mom does too. We do not fly well. And she's it, another weird habit too. Is that still in play? You, you mean the taping up of uh, she used the boxes to, and the notes only to be opened in the event of my death? That's right. She used to do, I, I don't know why a will wouldn't be sufficient, but she used to do tape recordings of herself. Um, I think explaining things, uh, what her wishes were, explanations, um, and then she would tape it up and put a sign on, do not open in case I die. She does not do that anymore. In my 20s, I did something similar. I would write letters, and and then I would give them to somebody, and they, all of these little individual letters put in one big envelope saying, you know, to be opened when I die, which obviously I'm going to do on this next flight. <laughs> That's not funny. I shouldn't have laughed. This book, writing this book, so this story that has been in, in the news anyway in Atlanta, reasonably well documented, you give it a fictional take. Why? Well, a really great book of nonfiction already exists by Anne Uri Abrams called The Explosion at Orly. And that was, by the way, a very instrumental book for me when I began researching this this story. This is not a book about the crash. This is a book about the aftermath and and the be, people and the people and and to be completely honest, it's a book about a community trying to reconstruct itself and it's about individuals in that community um, learning to navigate the new normal and the, this new terrain. And what I liked about this incident, I don't like anything about the the actuality of the incident, but artistically speaking, what presented itself as potentially useful for me as a writer was the fact of where it happened in Atlanta, who it affected, well, it happened in France, but who it affected people in Atlanta um, when it happened in 1962. And for me, it was the right platform to be able to talk about things that were on my mind and things that were confusing me and troubling me about the world that I live in today. And and those things include money, privilege, wealth, race. And I'm able to write through and figure out, not necessarily figure out, but but talk to myself about and have conversations with this world that I'm living in today by um, telling a story and grafting a story onto something that happened in 1962. And what did you learn at the end of this experience? I learned that we are woefully close to where we were in the 60s with regards to radically opposed points of view. I learned that we are experiencing, I think, a moment in history where great change is possible. I think that we are encountering, similar to 1962, privileges being questioned in a way that they've never been questioned before. I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter, hashtag me too. Um, I think every day we open the paper and we see um, new new voices being listened to. And, and that's really, that the, the latter half of that list is really exciting. There are obviously other things that we're seeing, police brutality, that's not exciting at all. But at least we're starting to hear the stories in a more 
visible way. In a sense, you're saying that the stories that we're reading about and hearing on the radio and seeing on the news uh, today are giving more voice to the voiceless because those people have lost something. And if I understand what I've read about you correctly, loss in your point of view leads to change. Did I get that right? Oh, I think absolutely. Um, Boy, you've done really great research. Um, Yeah, I think anytime you lose something, necessarily the path that you're on is going to be affected by that. And we can be talking about a dog, and I'm thinking very specifically about the stories that I've written before I started writing novels, All of my stories, when I look back, they are all about loss in some way or another. A dog goes missing. This this necessarily impacts the at least the events of that evening. Um, And then what else does it impact? Um, A father goes missing. um, And that can be by way of, you know, just disappearing or perhaps by way of death. Um, My my stepfather died in 2006. And for me, it was like a disappearance because He's just not there, and I can't talk to him anymore. And I had 11 months to get ready for that, but... You're never ready. You're never ready. You're really never ready, and it's amazing how 12 years can pass, and it still sucks. Um, so I, in, in reading the news, as something else that affects my sleep, and I think it probably affects most Americans' sleep right now, or you know anybody who who has got a heart, school shootings um, have just destroyed and devastated, I think, our sense of safety and um, our assumptions about the way we move around in the world, Um, church shootings as well. And I think that this book and this event provided... I wanted to talk about large-scale loss, and and I wasn't ready to do it until this book. You know, my first through three novels talk about loss to some degree. the The first one's about a girl who goes missing. The second one is about a father who commits suicide, and the third one is about uh, marriage. And they don't, you know, it's 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 the thing they can't articulate what's missing. It's just not what it was before. Um, and this this is the book where. I'm looking at an entire community and how they're navigating that loss. And part of why I wanted to do that was because, again, I feel like we are seeing community after community after community in our own country experience just this kind of large scale immediately and completely unexpected and unplanned for loss. In case you're just tuning in, my guest is the author Hannah Petard. She is the author of a number of novels, including Listen to Me, Reunion, and The Fates Will Find Their Way. She's an English professor at the University of Kentucky, where she also directs the Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing. Her book is Visible Empire, based on a true story against a background of grief. She gives us the journeys of those who must rebuild their city and their lives. As she's told us, it's the fictional story of the Atlanta mayor poised to keep the city moving forward, of a young man who's just been denied admission to an integrated school, of a complicated marriage, and so much more. But are showing us the people who have just inherited vast sums of money and some who realize their families really didn't have any money at all. The book takes place over the course of a sweltering summer, looking at history, race, class, grief, and love, all things that 
our community is experiencing, as you said right now, Hannah, um, and it's summertime and hot in a lot of places. In the book, there's a woman called Anastasia Rivers. She's a professional diver at a hotel. So in your research, you really find somebody like that that had that job? People got paid the, to, to The do research that. was very, very extensive here. Um, my mother used to dive at a swimming pool at a motel in Athens, Georgia. Now, since I've written this book, I've heard many more versions and I think in-depth versions of this uh, summer in my mom's life. She was not paid. She was not a professional. She was a college student who, in her spare time, somehow managed to get permission. And during the lunch hour, no one, I think it was the hottest time of the day, and you know everyone is inside. You don't even want to be in the water or near the pool. But she said, there was this pool I used to go to, and they never told me to leave, and I would go there and dive. I just loved to dive. I would get out of the water and I would dive. But of course, when we were kids, um, we heard some version of this story, and instead of asking for more information, at least I just let my imagination go crazy, and I, I, I could see the bathing suit, you know, because I had seen my mother dive. She's a beautiful diver, and so I imagined that you know people must be looking out on the windows and watching this beautiful woman diving. Obviously, I have my mom on a kind of pedestal, as all daughters should, maybe or maybe not. Um, no, it's good that you do. My I mother do. and I are ridiculously close. Oh, and so that's wonderful. Check it out. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something that's hilarious. She she left Charlottesville uh, last year moved to Lexington, Kentucky. She came to visit me one day and said, oh my gosh, you're so happy. And I said, I am happy. And she said, I'm going to move here. So she bought a house. She moved to Kentucky. She moved 0.5 miles from where I had a house, but her house is like twice as big and twice as nice. So she moved in and I said, mom, you know I'm going to sell my house now and move in with you. And we laughed. And then I sold my house and I moved in with her. <laughs> so now we live together. We, we both drive minis. We're both six feet tall in our tiny little minis. The neighborhood cracks up when they see us. I get up every morning and go for a run. She gets up every morning and she goes to ride her horse. We're hilarious. Like, we are the odd couple. Um, and I've got a friend. My best friend from high school is out in L.A. And when I told him I was <laughs> moving in with my mom, he wrote back one word, sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so it was, it was just this um, fantasy version of my mom that uh, made me think of this. What if? What if somebody was paid to dive? And I'm sure somewhere at some point, especially in the 60s, there was some beautiful woman at some pool who was being paid to just keep getting on the diving board and going off. I mean, how could there not have been? How could there not have been? Hannah, if you weren't teaching and writing and sharing an amazing house in Kentucky with your mom, what would you be doing? Do you, do you have a guess? Do you know the answer? Have I said this somewhere and you've read it? Because uh, there's only one answer. And that is? Comedian. But I don't have, I don't even have my 15 seconds. Whenever I tell people this, they'll say, oh, do you have your 45 seconds? Do you have your minute? Do you have your routine? No. I just Yeah, long... you do. It's, it's right up here you, in your head. I'm pointing I, at my, yes. I just feel, I think in the way that a lunatic might say, I've never played tennis, but I feel that I might be really good at it. Anybody who's played tennis knows it's like the hardest sport in the world. I'm terrible at it, but I just feel that I could be a really gifted comedian, but I, I couldn't have gone that route because I was unable to get out of my own way as a child. You know, a part of being an introvert and, and being that kind of professional shut-in 
sad, lonely child is that I took everything very seriously. And so if I tripped, that was not funny. That was the end of the world. And I'd be terrified that somebody would have seen me. And I think in order to be a successful comedian, well, first of all, you've got to see the real sadness in the world. And I think I can do that. But you've also got to be willing to make fun of yourself, which I can now very happily, eagerly even. Uh, but as a child, no. And so I lost all of those years of potential training. But you've watched routines from comedian Richard Lewis, who sounds exactly like the type of comedian you might be. Comedians often are all introverts because they can see what we don't see as well as so much of them. I can't wait to see you do some stand-up. I think about it, and every once in a while I say, okay, I think that my routine is going to start with this, and I'll, I'll, I can't even remember one of them right now, but I'll tell my sister or I'll tell my boyfriend, and I get this sort of dead stony stare no that's not gonna be it that's not funny hannah you're funny but that's not funny you're probably funny when you're trying to be funny what is it you want readers to take away from visible empire which is such a, a provocative title well the title comes from the full name of the kkk which is invisible empire of the knights of the ku klux klan and so your question is a really good one especially in combination with talking about the title, because I think that this title points at power that we can see and that we choose to ignore or that we choose not to talk about, Um, power that we assume is in the right place just because it's where it's been. Um, And so I hope that readers start asking themselves questions either about assumptions that they make or about things they do in their own lives that they could perhaps begin to do differently. Um, I think good literature engenders good questions. And what I hope for when I'm reading is to possibly be given a different view of the world. And I hope that that view then expands how I think and what I think about and makes me potentially a bigger hearted person. I would hope maybe that readers become better people. It's a, it's a really small thing that I ask. I'm trying to change people one, one reader at a time. One word, one reader at a time. And one thing that Visible Empire by Hannah Petard will do, it will make you think. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, MyAndalusCondo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.